I thought, I presumed the reason it was set in the 50s was, 58, is it's the perfect time where it's believable she can become a comedian like Lenny Bruce, but it's still got enough of a stigma that it can be a great allegory for what women in modern day celebrity have to deal with. And I'm like, that's a great time, and it really does expose a lot of what we, they have to face today. You could, by setting it in the past, it makes it seem absurd that women still have to deal with this. And it's like, this is great. And then I read, I read online why she said it at that time, and her answer was, I can't stand Snapchat. I'm not on social media, and I wanted to do a show where there are no cell phones. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylog team. So today, we're going to talk about the marvellous Mrs. Maisel, and that's not a superlative that I put in there. That's the show's name, and it is marvellous. I think that was my only disappointment with the show, is that that wasn't her stage name. The marvellous Mrs. Maisel. Yes. Maybe it will. Maybe it will. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks to everybody who's been getting in touch. We've had loads of you recently, uh, which is cool because it keeps me occupied during the long days where we're not podcasting. Um, uh, do get in touch. You can email um, through uh, the website, thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com, uh, and we're on Twitter at thestorytoolkit, and ping us any ideas or uh, things you want us to talk about. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So what happened was, this is a TV show, it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's only eight episodes so far. Um, and it is uh, annoying because uh, it's over and, and we need more. Uh, it's it's absolutely delightful. Um, my friend um, Adam Hughes put me onto it. He was Because te- I saw The Crown, because uh, I'd seen a bit of that and I love that. And at some point I'm going to try and do a podcast on it if I can convince Luke to watch The Crown. But... Um, I, I saw The Crown, I really liked it, and I was talking to Adam, and he loved The Crown, and he said, but now I'm watching Maisel. I'm like, I've never heard of this show. So he kind of said, you know, you just watch the first episode. If you don't like the first episode, don't bother, you. Pro- it's not your thing, but it's really funny. It's got Lenny Bruce in it, a character, a guy, Luke Kirby plays Lenny Bruce. Just give it a go. So, um, uh, and I did, and I loved it, and so I thought, this is amazing, so I told Luke to watch it. Luke and his wife Hannah watched it. They loved it. I told uh, Bob and Mia McKee to watch it. They loved it. So it's like it's a great show. So thanks, Adam. I don't know why I'm thanking him. He doesn't listen to this. <laughs> he's he's like he's like an amazing comic artist. He doesn't have time for my podcast. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's won two Golden Globes, which I think is a travesty because it should yes. have won all of them retroactively. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all Golden Globes throughout we- time. <laughs> <laughs> we really loved it. It's it's really delightful. Um, and it's it's as I say, it's eight episodes. They're like fifty minutes an episode. You'll you'll burn. You just binge them. Yeah, we did it in three days. It. And the only reason it took three as opposed to two is because one night it got to midnight, and like, I have a very early start in the morning. I cannot watch <laughs> another one. Right. It's just great. And in, and uh, it's written and created and directed and everything by. Amy Sherman Palladino, I think I've got the name right, who is, um, uh, unsurprisingly, considering what the show's about, she's, she's sort of a New York Jewish woman, right? Uh, she's written comedy. She, she was a dancer. She wrote Roseanne. She's written, she was the creator for Gilmore Girls. Uh, Bunheads, I believe, was something that she did as well. I, I'm not familiar with her work, but Maisel is really excellent. Um, let's get into it then. Uh, for the synopsis, it's a, it's a whole season, so we're not going to go through everything. No. We're going to just focus on the pilot. Yeah, the, and it's it's really wonderful. Um, it's worth watching. But uh, if you're if you're not in the mood to watch it or you just want to hear the rest of this podcast anyway, so here's, here's a basic synopsis of what the show is. So um, it, it stars Rachel Brosnahan, who's just luminous as uh, Midge Maisel. And it opens with her at her wedding, and she's gotten married to a guy named Joel. Um, and f- five years later, so she's just gotten married, and it's great. She's giving her speech at the wedding. So she's she's doing a speech at the wedding, which is a great setup. Uh, <laughs> it's just a great setup that she's doing the speech at the wedding. Um, and um, so she, she's, she's doing um, her speech. 
Uh, she puts lots of jokes in. It's really funny. It's really charming. And then five years later, she's very excited because the rabbi is coming over for Yom Kippur and all this. And she's doing her routine as the housewife for Joel. And she's just this perfect, wonderful housewife woman. Uh, it's set in the 50s, I believe. Yeah, 1958. 1958. So she's... Uh, and she's wonderful. And Joel is working in a, a firm, uh, some sort of plastics firm. Yeah. And he's he's working for them and he's doing his job but at night he likes to go down to the gaslight and do stand-up and because he is joel uh he does not bother to go down at lunchtime to book a time slot for his open mic night so as a result midge his wife has to not only get the baby the two kids that they have to the babysitter or to their parents or whatever she also has to cook a big brisket type thing I forget what the dish is. I think it's brisket. It's brisket. It yeah. is brisket. Cooks a big brisket dish, hands it to the guy who runs the gaslight as a bribe to get Joel a good time slot. And one of the uh, the woman who works there, Susie. I know the guy who, who the guy who runs the gaslight by the way is called Baz, and I know that because whenever I hear Baz, I'm like, oh wait a minute, that sounds close to my name, and I get angry because it's not Baz, it's Bass. And they're always wrong. Anyway, <laughs> the guy's name is Baz. And so she goes to bribe him with the brisket and the woman who works there, Susie, played by Alex... Uh, Borstein. Borstein. Uh, she's wonderful. Uh, the whole cast is fantastic, by the way. It really is. Uh, Tony Shalhoub's in it as Midge's dad and he's just adorable. We'll get to him in a bit. But And Kevin Pollack's in it. And the, the, I don't know the names of the actresses that play the mothers, the mother and the mother-in-law, but they are no, superb. Midge's mother was in uh, Two and a Half Men. Oh, they're so good. They're so, yeah. so good. I'm annoyed I don't know their names. Um, uh, so, so anyway, she's got made the brisket. And she goes to bribe. And Susie, the Alex uh, Borstein character, she's, you know, t- very snarky and mocks her for this constant bribery. Like, and all the excuses that she keeps coming up with for why Joel couldn't book a time like everyone else. And she gets Joel the slot. And Joel goes up there and he does a routine. And it does very well. And, you know, she's very happy and proud of him. She's making notes in a notebook for him so that she he can, like, learn and become a better stand-up. And, you know, that's the thing that they do together. And she's supporting him. And then you see her night routine where, like, she sets it up so that she goes to sleep looking perfect. She wakes up in the middle of the night, goes, takes off all her makeup, puts on her face mask, does all this stuff, goes back to bed, wakes up before Joel takes all that stuff off, puts all her makeup back in, goes back to bed, and then the alarm goes off, and she pretends she's been asleep the whole night, and she just wakes up looking perfect. And Joel is stupid enough to believe this. Right? Joel is so stupid that he actually thinks this is what's going on, rather than realising that that's how much his wife, like, cares about him, and, like, wants him to be happy with her, right? So, he doesn't see the effort. He's He's such a schmuck, as they say, right? Anyway, so... Joel, uh, and they, this routine, this is their routine. And Joel goes back down to the gaslight uh, with Midge. He does his routine. Uh, and what Midge has discovered is Joel's routine is not his own. He's actually stolen it from actual successful real comedian, right? She sees the routine being done on television. She thinks he, that um, she's, she's naive enough to think Joel came up with it, but he didn't. And there's a beautiful little moment because um, she says, I thought you came up with it. Like, she was proud of her husband. And he's like, and he just kind of mocks her for it. It's like, no, of course I didn't. You know, and it's like, there's this sense of like, he's not as funny as she thought he was. And anyway, it's very sweet. And um, so he goes back down there. And this time she's like, you know, you could make a joke out of certain things because a moth has eaten some holes into a sweater. So you could make a joke out of it and you could do this. So he goes up there and he starts trying to talk about the moth and he, does, and it, he just bombs and then he does the typical thing. He blames her, right? And there's this great thing. It's like, you're the one who told me to talk about the moth. And she goes, I thought you'd put it into like joke form. <laughs> Which is just great. And so the argument builds and builds and builds. It spirals until Joel says, I'm leaving. And he decides to leave her. And she's like, what? And she's like, I'm going to leave you. Uh, I'm not feeling right in this relationship. I've always wanted to be a comedian. This is something I really want to be. And you're holding me back. And she's like, I'm holding you back. This is a real... She thought it was a hobby, something fun they were doing. But no, it's really serious for him. Um, And she offers to, like, you know, change or try and do better. And he's like, no, I've had enough. I'm seeing my secretary. 
Right, you're seeing your secretary, the one who doesn't know how to use a pencil sharpener, because literally in a scene earlier we see the secretary not be able to use a pencil sharpener. She doesn't know how to use one. Um, and it's like, yeah, I'm leaving. So he packs up his stuff and he leaves. And so this breaks Midge's heart. She starts drinking. <laughs> she starts drinking. She's in a nightgown and everything. And she just walks out of the apartment, down the street, into the subway. She's drunk. People are staring at her on the subway. She's holding a bottle of wine. Um, and she's, uh, she's, <laughs> she's drunk. She goes to the gaslight. And she walks up onto the stage of the gaslight. She pushes whoever's there. And she just starts ranting. And she is funny. She is so funny. And Susie, uh, Alex Borstein's character, the woman who who sort of essentially runs the gaslight, she doesn't own it, but she runs it, sees how funny she is. And she's just she's just hilarious. And that's how the spark begins of Susie is gonna make Midge a stand-up comedian star. And that's how the show starts, right? That's not even is that the whole first episode? It's pretty much the yeah, first and, episode. Yeah. Oh, but, oh, yeah, because <laughs> she gets arrested. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she gets arrested because part of her routine. I say routine. She's just up there yelling and ranting, and she's swearing a lot, which gets the attention of the police. <laughs> During the routine, she she complains because she thinks there's no way the secretary can look as good as her. And she just pulls her Nicholas down and exposes her breasts and the police just can't rock for like what do they call it cabaret stripping yeah. and all that stuff and so she, so like the first episode ends with her in prison <laughs> she's in the jail uh, overnight and she has to like get out on bail and stuff um, it's very funny uh, but that's the, essentially the first episode it's just terrific and from there it just builds and goes off for seven more episodes and then stops and plunges a dagger of betrayal into your heart <laughs> As you just think to yourself, why hasn't it continued? Um, and it's very important to us that the cast is wonderful. Everyone's great, except Joel, who we all hate. Uh, <laughs> right? We just say he's such a schmuck. Um, so it's great. It's a really wonderful show. Okay. Uh, so there's two big things we want to talk about. So yeah. um, let's crack on with the first one. Uh, genre. Yeah. Um, so like most long-form television shows, it's going to have... Um, Many different genres in it. And again, the whole reason to do this genre stuff, by the way, because I think I was talking to just a Doombot, <laughs> that's, that's his Twitter handle, the other day. He was asking me about what you know, he was saying, like, because we did the Doctor Who episode, um, and he was saying, uh, what's the best horror film? And uh, I said, I, I, I don't know what you, how you would do that, you know, how you would make the, the stand for it. And he goes, well, I just wanted you to say Jaws. And I said, well, actually, Jaws is action, not horror. And he goes, well, I thought... And say, no, explain He's why. not... That's funny. He's not the only person to cite uh, Jaws as a horror movie. Yeah, Jaws has horror sort of-ish elements to it that were done by accident because the shark was looked really bad on camera, so they had to hide the shark, mm. which gives it that horror kind of sense. And the opening is quite terrifying. And the whole tagline, you'll be afraid to go in the water yeah. and stuff. But Jaws, by and large is not scary in the same way that Alien is or The Shining is or whatever. But uh, the reason the reason I bring this up was because these kind of distinctions are interesting for people who are writing in order to do genre research, right? And understand the audience's expectations. They are of really pedantic, just worthless time sinks for people who like for critics and stuff, because people don't write this way. People don't write, I'm going to write my genre and that's it. You spread out and you, especially with long form, you're going to write in all kinds of different genres mm. and you're not going to think in terms of, well, this is working well on this genre and not on that. You don't, you don't, you don't separate them as you write. You just kind of write and you combine them. The reason to research it is, look, say you're telling a story, you're writing a long form story, and you have in your story uh, an aspect of romance that's building. If you don't know what a love story is and how a love story works, you will either accidentally guide your audience into thinking you're having a big romance building when you're not, or you will end up doing romance cliches in an otherwise interesting story, etc., etc. So the reason you do it is you want to know, as I, you know, to use that analogy of the color wheel, 
right? Mm. The reason you want to know is you want to know what colors you're using. You can then mix and match them however you want. You can drop a color, bring in a new color, shade them, tint them, whatever. You don't even have to think in terms of, you know, you have your messy artist's palette and you just keep mixing them all together and you put them up. That's fine. The only reason to know this is when you want to do your research and you want to understand what it is you're doing, it's helpful to be able to itemize these things so you know where to look. Because otherwise you can waste so much time researching stories that have nothing to do with what you're doing. And then, you, you see what I mean? So if you're writing something that's romance, you want to know what a love story is, right? So you can research the love story when you get stuck. But if you don't know what genres you're writing, when you get stuck, you're stuck. And you just don't know where you're going, right? So that's why it's useful to know this stuff. Um, it's it's very tempting to have a sort of like really nice, get really sort of taxonomic and you know just start going like oh like trading cards you know collecting them and like itemizing everything and categorizing it. It's really nice to do that. It's it's really nice to be very you know cate categorical and analytical. It's very tempting, but it's and it's fine so long as you remember that the purpose for doing that is to learn more not to circumvent like actually learning anything it's not just so that you can like take a test at some point because there will never be a test right so i say this because i i seriously doubt that the uh, writer uh, mrs uh, pa uh, sherman paladino i seriously doubt that's this is how she would look at it yeah. um uh but it's it's just worth interesting to so you can try and study around it and if you're writing in these genres Maisel has turns and twists and conventions that will be interesting for you in that sense. So, so first one then performance. Yeah. So the performance story, uh, the performance story um, is often thought of as the sports story, but uh, sports is just an activity and it can have, tell any kind of story if you really wanted it to. But sports stories, stories about people putting on shows, music. So, for example, Whiplash is a performance story. Monsters University is a performance story. Rocky is a performance story. These are all performance stories. And fundamentally, what a performance story is about is a character is going to have to put on a performance at some point, uh, the object of which is to gain respect. And either they're going to get respect from the outside world, they're going to get respect from their family and friends and lovers, or they're going to get respect for themselves. Uh, or all of them, <laughs> any combination of them. So, you know, Rocky is really out for respect from everyone, right? I mean, when you look it down, Rocky is not about him winning the fight. Rocky is fundamentally about him gaining self-respect and respect from Adrian and respect from people. The whole thing is he wants people to realize he's not a bum. He's the only guy who ever went the distance with Apollo Creed. It's all about respect. Happy Gilmore is about respect, you know? These are these are performance stories. It's, it builds to a point where the character has to put on performance and what hangs in the balance is their respect. And so this first season of Mrs. Maisel builds to her putting on this big performance, basically, yeah. which will project her into a stardom. And what matters for Maisel, because she's already got money, right? So it's not about money. She doesn't care about fame. Not really. That doesn't interest her. Uh, what it really is about Maisel is, is about is for that sense of respect. She wants to have respect for herself. Uh, and in fact, what is the one reason she keeps it secret? It's embarrassment, right? She's worried that she's going to get shamed and mocked and humiliated and thought of as, uh, as gauche by her family and all that stuff for doing comedy. So she keeps it secret, right? Because it's about that, that value. That's what performance stories are always about fundamentally and what's great is this is by the way how you can tell genres are real despite what people say every person who writes these stories it's always about respect but there's no one book anywhere that they've read that says hey it's about respect they all whenever you tell a story that does this kind of thing it becomes about respect because that's what these events are about that's what genres are so there <laughs> um then uh, the next genre that this uh, goes with uh, is the enterprise story. And the enterprise story is about someone trying to, typically they're trying to make a job or they're an inventor. They're trying to do something like a business of some sort. So, you know, famously the money pit, uh, we bought a zoo, uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> right? Ghostbusters is about putting, a, putting on a business. That's, the, that's like a good three quarters of the film is about them being businessmen and it's a startup business, right? 
Uh, and enterprise stories are, again, they're not about money, really. What they're really about is worth. Either, again, a worth to society, a worth to their friends and family. Well, personal worth it doesn't really happen the same way, but it can be in the sense that it's worth something to their family. Or self-worth. And worth and respect are very similar, but there's a, there's a sort of a nuance between the two, which is respect is people respect you for who you are and your capacities. Worth is people respect what you can do, if that makes sense. There's that sort of distinction, right? Yeah. So the value... So, for example, in an enterprise story, what matters is the thing that they have done, not so much who they are, but what they have done reflects on them, right? But in a performance story, it's their capacity to do it that's more important. It's, oh, it's you I respect, not necessarily the piece of music that you made, right? If that makes sense, there's a sort of a slight nuance there. Mm. Um but that's the Enterprise story, and of course, there is this sense of, like, what she's doing has worth. Susie very much feels that this is important. This is worth something, you know? And and uh, and Midge herself very much enjoys the sense of that this is something that she's doing that is working. Do you know what I mean? That this is actually something of value, that what she's doing. She's really good at it, and when she does it and it works, it has value. So that actually, that, that does matter to Midge. Um, in that sense, that's part of what gives her her sense of respect. It's respect When you break those two down, the performance and the enterprise, yeah. it, it does back up what you said about there being no way the writer intentionally set out to do these two things side by side. No. However, when you go into the values and the difference between yeah. worth and respect, it's clear that there are those are aspects of this story. Yeah, and and as and not in just this story, but like every story in these genres. Every, yeah, you take any like we you look at we bought a zoo and look at Ghostbusters, and they're both about the same thing fundamentally. Ghostbusters goes into action right at some point and it becomes about life and death, and they have to save the world and all that. But like all that stuff where they're running around like trying to stop ghosts, what are they doing? They're like they're trying to prove that like. They actually are a business that what they're doing is real and has value, right? That's the whole point of the story. It's like, what's the point if we bought a zoo? Well, I got it. I bought a zoo and I have to show that the zoo is worth something. Like, that's what these stories are about. It's almost self-evident. But people, for some reason, want to reject it. It's like, why? I don't get it. But anyway. Um, yeah. Maturation. It's And fundamentally, Maisel is a maturation story. She is growing up. Uh, you, you, I mean, as wonderful as she is at the beginning, uh, she's really naive. Really naive. She's putting so much effort into this relationship and she has no clue that Joel has no respect for her at all. He has, he has, she, he, he doesn't see any value in her and what she does. He doesn't see, have any respect for her. Uh, he feels like he's entitled to her and all that stuff. And she puts all this effort in. You see the amount of effort she puts in to make him happy and how little it matters to him. Because she's made it too easy, almost. She's made it too easy. If she was with a guy who was really mature and sensitive, uh, the way she is at the beginning of the story, uh, he would he would just be so happy with her, you know, and he would be so thankful to her, and he'd be so supportive of her. And you would get the sense that when he got home from work, it wouldn't be let's go out and follow my dreams. It would be what is your dream that we can follow tonight, you know? she he, And he'd discover, oh, you're funny? And he'd be the one taking her to the gaslight to make her have, uh, enjoy her career. And he'd be taking notes of her when he got home from work because he respects her so much. You see what I mean? But her naivete comes in because she doesn't realise how immature Joel is. And so she's kind of... So they're very immature. And there's a wonderful bit where... Uh, spoilers, obviously. Uh, there's a wonderful bit later on in the uh, series where Joel and Midge are starting to get back together against all my furrowed anger and me <laughs> screaming at this, at this television. You know, like, don't go back with him. They start getting back together again. And what one of the routines that she used to do is she would measure herself to make sure that she's not getting fatter, right? To make sure that she's still perfectly the same way or like same dimensions that she was when, when they met, right? Well, she's been keeping track for like... 17 years or something right so she so she goes back they're getting back together and she starts measuring herself again and the, um, my immediate reaction was she's regressing she's just falling back into that stupid pattern of, of that and it's just like he he doesn't he doesn't 
he's not paying attention. You know, he's already he's already left you for someone who is a younger model. Like it's just ridiculous, you know. So, um, so yeah. So there's a sense of immaturity at the beginning of the story, and as the story goes on, and as she starts talking, you realize just how because the the first time she has her big stand up tirade, she's so insightful and sharp. Right? And you can just tell she's holding it back. And it's like, so inside her, we can see, like, no, there's actually a real woman in there that needs to come out, right? So that's, you know, Heisenberg has to come out, right? So we're watching um, we're watching her mature over the course of the story mm. as she stops. Uh, and and also, not only just mature in the sense of, like, stop, stop being this naive type of thing, but at the same time, she has to realize how to play the game a bit. Because one of the things, she, the mistakes she makes as she's getting it further, further up this um, this ladder uh, of success, um, is she just starts saying things she shouldn't be saying. She's betraying confidences and things like that. And she, you like you you when she does that, you go like, yeah, I know you're telling the truth and you're right, but what you're doing is wrong. Like mm-hmm. you don't just out people this way. You don't talk about people like that. You going up on like you actually have to consider who you're talking about a bit more. You know. And so, so she hasn't like she's not mature at the end of the story completely yet, but she's she's getting more and more mature as the story goes on. That's a big deal for us. She we has, want to see her become more self possessed. She has changed, and she yes. she even says as much yes. in the uh, in the finale. Yeah, because she doesn't go back with Joel really, mm. or if she or, or rather, it's open to the sense she might, but it definitely won't go back the way it was. Yeah. She says I've changed and and he's changed as well. Like, yeah, we're different people. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. What's interesting is the way Joel has changed is he's he's starting to mature because he's starting to realize just how much of a schmuck he is. There's a beautiful bit at the very end of the season where he discovers that she's a really good stand-up, and uh, he goes down to her performance unaware. She doesn't know he's there. But he goes down and she starts talking about basically Joel, and you're expecting him to heckle her. Right, like we both, Luke was saying about this, like we both expect him to heckle her and do cause a scene. He doesn't. Another guy starts heckling her, and that guy, she heckles back basically, and he gets embarrassed and he leaves. And Joel follows him out, and Joel picks a fight with him and kicks the crap out of him, going, "She's really good. She's really, really good," and sort of like, sort of like stumbles off into the night. Uh, down the street, and you get the sense that he's kind of starting to crack, like how amazing Midge really is as a person, and how ridiculously stupid he was to not see that and to take it for granted, right? So there is a sense of maturity, but no, he's not allowed to get back with her. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like um, okay, so that that's in terms of uh, maturation. In terms of Midge, the performance enterprise and and maturation, yeah. Um, Those are all things that Midge wants that she's trying to get. Yeah, yeah. these three others kind of expand outwards a little bit. Um, yeah. Social drama is interesting. There is an aspect of social drama to it, but Midge isn't trying to correct um, the injustice in society. She's not. She's not trying to, you know, uh, be a crusader uh, for women's rights or anything like that. Midge just doesn't. It's not that Midge doesn't care. It's just that's not what she really wants. Um, it's not something that really. Um, drives her but it is something that drives Susie Uh, and it is something that drives other people around her and it is something that is driving society at the time Uh, and so uh, it's something that I think is probably going to become more and more pronounced as the series goes on as she gets more once she's stopped being able to hide that she's a stand-up it's going to become a more prominent part of it but uh, at the moment she hasn't suffered a huge amount of backlash uh, for her trying to be a comedian, normally they say you can be a comedian, but you have to ha- be with a guy or you have to perform a certain way, right? You have to have a yeah, you have to yeah. have a, a gimmick. You have to have a gimmick. There, there's certain things that kind of like you're allowed to be a comedian, but not like this. You have to be like this, right? And she's kind of going down the Lenny Bruce way of being a stand-up, and so uh, there is going to be more conflict the more successful she gets. In that area, but at the moment, it's not a huge part of the show, but it is an important part of the backdrop of the show. Um, but it's not something like she's not gonna. She Midge is not gonna. The story is not about her kind of like fighting for women's rights. She's her. She's fighting for herself, which is sort of allegorical for that that whole issue. 
Um, but it's more about her as opposed to society. It's funny because a lot of her material does come from the fact that she yeah. is, is a woman. So in a sense, yeah, she, totally. is, yeah. she is pointing out hypocrisies and stuff. Yes. But she's getting laughs out of it. The, exactly. way, the, the way a comedian would in real life. Yeah, you don't... I mean, <clears throat> let me put it this way. Midge is not going to stop being a stand-up and become a crusader. Yeah. Like a political actor. She's not going to go into politics. Right? That's not something Midge is going to do. Mm. Um, so um, it's it's more, the the story can go in a lot of places, but it kind of has to stay on the stage. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, and, and, as as I say, like these are just questions of emphasis and choices and things like that. Uh, but social drama is a really big, important part of the story. Um, uh, how did you describe it? It's it, it was feminist. How did you say it was a really nice feminist show? How did you phrase it? I you think I just called. I think I just said that it it seemed like a feminist show. I, th- I thought you phrased it in a different way, but it was really... I remember the way you said it was just... Maybe it was just the tone of how you said it was really nice. Basically, like, off, it was mic, just, off mic listeners, I was really eloquent. It, it, you know, it, he just said it in a nice way. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's just like it's a really nice feminist show, but it wasn't It wasn't aggressive. It wasn't... It was It was just done really... It's really nicely done. It's like it is a very feminist show, but it's... I don't know. It doesn't feel like a social drama. In that sense, it doesn't feel like the hitting on the head of like social dramas usually do. Social dramas can start to aggravate me because they can become very didactic very quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, and this isn't a social drama in that sense. It's just it's it's a part of the show, but it's not the show. If yeah, that makes sense. It's not like The Wire. The Wire is a social drama, right? Yeah. The Wire is a full-on social drama that I love, but this is not like that. Um, but it's 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 an important part of the story, it's and so it's really it's really nicely done. Mm. I really love the way they do it. Let's push um, on. Hold on. Important thing about the feminist part. Actually, this is worth pointing out. I like this. Um, Amy, uh, I'm going to say her name wrong now. Sherman Palladino. I think that's right. Uh, <laughs> I thought, I presumed the reason it was set in the 50s was, 58, is it's the perfect time where it's believable she can become a comedian like Lenny Bruce, but it's still got enough of a stigma that it can be a great allegory for what women in modern day celebrity have to deal with. And I'm like, that's a great time. And it really does expose a lot of what we, they have to face today. You could, by setting it in the past, it makes it seem absurd that women still have to deal with this. And it's like, this is great. And then I read, <laughs> I read online why she said at that time. And her answer was, I can't stand Snapchat. I'm not on social media. And I wanted to do a show where there are no cell phones and there's no Twitter and there's no social media. I can't take it anymore. I hate writing about that stuff. I'm not on it. It does my head in. And I just thought like, what a beautiful reason. (laughs) I mean, obviously like all that social drama stuff is key to the show and she's aware of it. But I like the, I love the idea that the initial impetus is just, it reminds me, um, Neil Gaiman uh, wrote a comic book called 1604. It's a Marvel comic book where Marvel Universe is, but it's set in the 17th century. And he wrote it around 2002, something like that. And someone asked, you know, what was the inspiration for this? And he goes, like, I just didn't want to write anything that could have an airplane or a bomb. <laughs> you know, because it's 2002. He's like, I just don't want to talk about that stuff. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have it in the story. So he said it in the 17th century. So you didn't have the. So there's the whole story of like you've got all these characters, but in the 17th century. It's a nice place to start. Yeah, find a purity of story to just go back in time. Yeah, it's just like, I'm going to pick it. I'm going to. But I love it. It's great. It's like I'm going to pick my setting for a specific reason. It's like it's a real choice. It's not just I'm going to set it in the modern day. I want to set it in another time so I don't have to deal with certain things of today. This is, yeah, we've already segued enough, but just very quickly, <laughs> why was Chinatown set in the 20s? Oh, you love this story. I do. So Chinatown, famously, is a film made in 1979 about a scandal that happened in the late 1800s, like 1880, 1890, yet it is set in 1920s, 1930s. Why? Because pinstripes are cool. Because <laughs> because those cars are awesome. Because you can get on the side of the car, stand and point and go, follow that car, and it drives off. And it has that whole Hollywood vibe, and it just looks amazing. <laughs> and it looks like the Hollywood 1940s film noir, and that's what you want. So that's what it said at that time. So this is just, what a great reason. <laughs> those hats are cool. <laughs> because it's cool. It's um, just a cool look. All right, then very quickly, your last two. Domestic drama? Uh, domestic dramas are stories about 
families trying to stick together and to stay apart. And in this, there's a really nice sort of uh, compositional aspect because it's it's counterpointing the love story. Because um, Maisel and Joel, uh, rather Midge and Joel, being together, uh, we feel is not love. Uh, we, we fundamentally feel that Joel can't respect her enough and has betrayed her too much that they can really love one another. And we get the sense that Midge can't really love him and forgive him in that way. Um, that it will not really be love if they're together. But at the same time, we want them to find love. So in a weird way, we want them to stay apart so they can, so that we, we're not even upset if Joel does find love, really. After, after season one, you know, I'm okay if he finds love, just not with her. Mm. And Midge, um, we obviously want her to find someone who does love her and actually does respect her and has sees her as having value and all the things that Joel didn't give her, right? We actually want her to find someone like that. So, um, but still be Midge, <laughs> right? So we want them to find love, but we don't really want them to stay together. Uh, and so it's a nice, interesting counterpoint for those two genres. Oh, for domestic drama and love stories. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, we've covered the last one. Then, yeah. Let's go on to the the other meaty topic then, which is to do with scripting. Right. Yeah. So before we get into it, uh, talk about retro scripting versus improv comedy. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. The, so retro scripting is this thing. Curb Your Enthusiasm does it. Retro scripting is when you have a script and it may or may not have dialogue. Uh, and then when you go to record the film uh, or the television series or whatever, uh, people improvise the dialogue and they wing it, as they say. They improvise around the scene and then certain takes are kept in order to... So it's retroscripting in the sense that the script is kind of ironed out on set. Uh, this is something films do a lot. It's something that some television series do now. Uh, Curb Enthusiasm... Uh, is very famous for doing it, but other shows did it. Aquatine Hunger Force did it. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, Aquatine Hunger Force did it. Uh, and um, films do it. Thor Ragnarok did it. Uh, most of the sort of Paul Rudd, Will Ferrell, uh, um, Melissa McCarthy. What's it? Paul Feig? Is he the director for a lot of these films? I think it's Paul Feig. Paul Feig, something like that. Uh, they do a bunch of these things, and that's sort of what retroscripting is. Um, I mean, full-on improv comedy is something like Whose Lines Anyway, where there's not even a set, you know, and you just start improving totally with just um, maybe one or two guidelines. Um, but retroscripting is something that's uh, um, that, that you see uh, quite a bit, and you can often tell if something's retroscripted because uh, the longer a scene goes on that's improvised, the more repetitive it becomes. Uh, people just keep repeating back what was said a bit earlier. They keep doing callbacks to the same thing. Uh, it's a lot more stammering and stuttering. Uh, improv is often best in short bursts for a reason. The longer you try to do improv, uh, the worse it gets. Um, because <clears throat> uh, as you as you improvise and you you because <laughs> the story works like this: you set up and then you pay off, right? Improv, you set up. And it's, you start setting up more than you can possibly pay off. And then you start repeating your setups. And before you know it, you haven't paid things off. You've forgotten what you set up. And bam. And it's over. Right? And then it becomes very unsatisfying. So improv um, really works in short bursts where people can set something up, pay something off in a quick time. That's that's the best kind of improv. Uh, the other kind of improv that's really great, which is what retroscripting focuses on, is that you already have your setups and payoffs done. But you improvise around them to create a greater spontaneity and to um, create reactions that you might not expect. A very famous one from Kerber Enthusiasm, for example, is where they didn't say cut and Larry David, uh, there's, they're talking about how there might be a terror attack in LA and they didn't say cut and Larry goes, and uh, Larry and Cheryl, are they're, they're hearing that there's going to be a terror attack on the weekend in LA. Cheryl says she can't leave LA uh, because she has a gala to do. And so they didn't say cut, and Larry goes, well, maybe what if I go? <laughs> Which ended up this whole thing about Cheryl going, you'd be okay if you left me in LA to die in a terror attack. So, and he's like, well, I mean, if you don't want to leave, okay, but I, 
I think I should go. One of us should go. It's like, you'd be happy with me being dead and you living alone. I wouldn't be happy, but, you know, I don't see why I should die because you have a gala. <laughs> right? Like that's, and so it happened because, like, they didn't say cut, right? It's a great gag. Um, so retroscripting has its sort of... Um, has its virtues in that sense. Um, what's but, the what's the qualitative difference between something like Curb and something like a, a Melissa McCarthy com- uh, type comedy? Well, you said it off mic, right? The, the, the big difference yeah, is. Yeah, but what... I'm trying. I'm trying to make you seem smart. <laughs> okay, this is the this is the secret behind here, right? Luke's the Luke's the rabbit. <laughs> um, so the, the what ha- the difference that you pointed out, which was, you say, I want you to say it. Okay. Uh, so the laughs in Curb come from uh, a beat that has already been decided and mm. scripted. So the dialogue just is like dressing to that yeah. funny beat. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean to say you can't get laughs from the dialogue no. that's improvised, but the, the fundamental belly laughs come from yeah. the script. Whereas something like um, uh, uh, the, the other types of comedies, um, like Bridesmaids or... Something like that is that the laughs come from the funny dialogue. Yeah. By by and large. Yeah. There's the, there's a really dialogue. funny outtake you can see called this is, uh, this uh, this is forty something like that. What was it called? I haven't seen this is. Uh, is it this is forty? Is that the name like of it? Yeah. Judd Apatow, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Rudd, Melissa yeah. McCarthy's in just a couple of scenes. There's an outtake. Uh, they played it, I think, during the credits of the you know the credits, and it's Melissa McCarthy just ranting for two minutes at this woman in the office and it is hilarious like what she says like I bet your husband killed himself I'd kill myself too if I was married to you that kind of just like really savage stuff and the other actors in the room are just holding back tears of laughter so they don't ruin the take right it's just so funny um and what's funny is what Melissa McCarthy is saying none of that is in that's not what the story is right no and the the, the it's other... just her being really funny <laughs> Fun, funnily enough the other example i was going to mention was melissa mccarthy again yeah i i do feel that she is just the best that she's is. so funny she's just adorable. um but the scene in uh heat where she is again ranting at yes. the uh police commission uh yeah. her sergeant or um yeah. uh whatever rank he is uh, and she starts ranting about him having no balls, and she just stops talking, <laughs> opens the door, yells at the room, says, "Anybody seen the the, the captain's balls? They're they're about this big, <laughs> little little tiny balls." <laughs> when she does this great bit in, in Spy, I love it as well. In Spy, when she just she just says like. She, when she's like trying to pretend she's really tough and she just goes do you want me to have Cagney and Lacey and she's holding up her fist she's got Cagney and Lacey like, one will go right up your ass one will go down your throat they'll meet in the middle and pump your heart like an accordion they'll pump that until it bursts and the guy starts tearing up and goes are oh, you going to cry are you going to cry that just she's so sad but the, the thing is this is something that Bill Murray used to do you, uh, Richard Pryor used to do it. You used to get these people who are very funny comedians who are very good at improv and they were allowed to improv in a scene to make the scene really, really funny. But f- but what was different was that wasn't how you made a film. Mm. That might be how you did a scene or two. That might be how you did a take. <laughs> it's not how you composed a whole film where you would just go, we'll have a scene here where they talk about this and this and this and you have this bare bones script that has nothing to it. But then you hope the dialogue will save it. And in fact, not just the dialogue, but that you will edit together performances from all different takes. So there's not even one take, do you understand? Like M- McCarthy and Murray and Pryor, they would do a great take and then that take was used. But now you'll get someone who is doing a dozen different takes and they'll use a reaction from one take, this from that take. And so the hierarchy basically for, for improv and retroscripting is this. You have a really great story then you have a great performance, then you do the editing, right? But what's happening is people like to focus on the editing first. We'll fix it all in editing. We film, the film is cheap now. So we will just film as, once we've set up the lights, once we've set up the camera, which is always gonna be the most boring looking camera shot. It's always gonna be the most simple, obvious lighting that's possible and all this stuff. Once we've done that, we're gonna set it up like that. We'll film as much as footage as we can for as long as we've got this set because everyone's on set now. The film is not the thing that costs, it's the time 
now. We just film as much as we can, hand it to the editor, and he can make something out of it. And that's it. And that's why Edgar Wright shines, right? Or Wes Anderson shines. That's why these guys just are wonderful, because everything's so planned out. So you have a spectrum, really, between this sort of... Uh, uh, improv, retroscript, good retroscripting in the middle, like Curb Enthusiasm, and then actually properly rehearsed work. And what I loved about Maisel as I was watching it, and you just see these brilliant actors doing these brilliant scenes, uh, one after another, there's not... I mean, the only way you can binge watch a show like this is because every scene is just so enjoyable to watch, and you just can't wait to see the next one because it's... And Amy <coughs> Sherman... Paladino, I'm going to get it wrong. I should just say ASP because I know at least the initials, right? She is known for this sort of pitter-patter and this sort of screwball comedy kind of writing. And she used to be in dance. And so she understands rhythm and music. She has this whole tirade about how music and television is just constantly on like a laugh track. And it's just annoying and distracting. And so she saves it. And the music in Maisel, you start dancing to the music and everything. And so Maisel has this fantastic rehearsed, pedigree to it and in the first episode when uh, Midge tells her parents that Joel has left her they they do this beautiful farce in the apartment as they move in and out of the rooms all in one take everyone's picking up their cues everyone's and the beautiful thing is they've had to rehearse you see people act like oh, you need to improv to get spontaneity actors are actors they can act spontaneous like, they they actually good if you let them do it. So you've got these actors, and they're moving around back and forth, and they're being... They're, they're, and, they're, you know, Tony Shalhoub, and it's just so wonderful. You go, what did I tell you? What's the most important thing? And she goes, don't eat deli meats. The other thing is also about deli meats. No, no, the other thing. Don't marry a weak man. Ah! And then he just walks <laughs> off. And, like, he has all... And so there's all these just joyous moments where the camera knows where it needs to be. The actors know the camera have got yeah. them properly in frame. Move, move, move. And I look at something like that, and, you know, we're talking about how I love Melissa McCarthy, but, man, can you imagine if she was given something like that? Right. Wow. They get a huge... In that... I know the scene you're talking about um, in the pilot. They yeah. get a huge laugh from the mother moving from one room <laughs> to another room. She moves to one room, starts crying. Midge goes, Ma, stop crying. I can hear you. I can hear you in that room. Stop. And she goes, okay. She gets up, walks to a room further away, get close to the door, starts wailing again. <laughs> like she thinks if she's just one room down, no one will be able to hear her. But it's but it's all rehearsed. It's it's beautifully rehearsed, and it's not and as a result, it's not disposable. And so you can rewatch it and you get that. You get that, you see, comedy needs to be able to build up. And when you do these improv things, people just go for the biggest laugh they can every scene, right? And so it just kills the comedy after a There's while. Also, it really, it, it, you, it, what it becomes, you're watching lots of sketches. Yeah. It's not a story. We, did this, we talked about a lot about this when we did the producer's podcast. Yes. And the, the problem for me now, the reason it annoys me so much... Because I don't mind. Like, I love Melissa McCarthy so much. I really liked Spy and he. Uh, you know, to be fair, those ones actually have storylines. The storylines aren't funny. She makes them funny. Mm. But the storylines are nice, solid, basic storylines of, like, crime story and action story. And they work. Mm. And, like, Jason Statham is amazing in Spy. Right? So, Spy, I, I really liked. So, it's, I, you know, I don't... I, I hope we're not sounding like we're ragging on Melissa McCarthy. Because, you know, if I see Melissa McCarthy's name on a film, I want to watch the film. Like, she's just so funny and like she's always great yeah. but the, you know the directing is something I'm not particularly there's excited a, to see the, re the, re the reason we have to talk about these is there, there is just a difference in the quality of laugh that yeah. you get from a funny piece of dialogue to um, yeah uh, to a, a, a like a, a funny beat and also and a, a, the reason it annoys me other than it's the only reason we're getting these kind of films is because it's lazy and cheap it's not because people have a strong sense of art about it. It's not like, you go, wow, the art. The art of it. Kirby Enthusiasm, you know, like, he does it this way because he doesn't need to write the dialogue. He just knows there's no point. He can make the stories funny and he puts... Like, his scripts that have no dialogue for a 20-minute episode are almost 14 pages long. There's no dialogue in those pages. 
That's almost a page a minute. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like he, those are. T- um, I saw an interview with Ricky Gervais and Larry David, and he got he showed him one of the scripts, and Ricky Gervais is like, "There's a lot in here." Like he was expecting it to be far less than it was. It was like, mm. no, it's it's over a dozen pages of of writing, and you know he's he's so. It's not like he's trying to avoid work or whatever, but he likes the spontaneity. But Larry David was was saying things like he always got annoyed in sitcoms and things where someone would say something really funny, but no one else laughed. Why is no one laughing when you have all these great lines? Woody Allen would do stories where Woody Allen would say something funny and people in the room would start laughing at what he's saying because what he's saying is so funny, right? So he wanted to get that. And he, the way he did that was having these improv moments. So... So fundamentally, like when you see these films that come out, they're like they uh, Matt Stone. There's a name for them in Hollywood. They're the ten million shitty comedy films. That's what they're called. The point being, they cost nothing. They make their money back. They come out. Everyone's fine to work on them because they don't require any effort. They're lazy, cheap stuff. Now, normally, like fine. I feel vindicated if Matt Smith. Matt Stone, yeah. Oh, Matt Stone, sorry. No, no, not the doctor. Not the doctor. Uh, <laughs> um, so, but here's the thing: like, that's fine. I don't mean to be a snob about it. The reason that that upsets me, particularly at the moment, is because this is this long form storytelling is it's really hard to get comedy as a long form story because long form story you need empathy, right? And comedy actively wants you to have as little empathy as possible. As possible, right? It's not that you can't empathize. It's that you don't want too much. Because if you empathize too much, they're not funny anymore. Mm. Okay? So as a result, long-form comedies either are serials. They're episodes, one after another. It's like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, right? It's it's really just a series of 20-minute short stories, right? Just short stories, short stories, short stories. So the characters don't need to be empathetic because they get into hijinks and they're out of it. Or it starts being a dramedy. It has soap opera elements to it. And it starts to... I, I say that it's, it sounds like I'm being a snob, but I mean, there's lots of personal conflict and mm. characters start to have... Uh, and Maisel has to do that, right? Mm. There's dra- dramatic aspects to it. Uh, because it can't just be constantly pure funny in that way because that style doesn't want to be long because you need to build the audience up and then make them laugh. And then you have to keep building them back up and you have to keep the emotional distance. But then at the same time, they won't keep tuning in if they don't care about the character. See what I mean? It's not that it's not possible. It's just that it's really difficult. There's a fine balance. So that means how do you get the really delicious, beautiful, it hurts belly laughs, full length cinema comedies like the producers, like Midnight Run and all those things. And you're not going to get them. We're just not going to get that beautiful that what i loved you know i loved watching those films where they build you up and they made you just cry with laughter at the end of the two hours you just couldn't stop laughing like you know you had those wonderful 30 minute farces that fraser did or faulty towers but then you would get films that could do it and the the sheer amount of laughter that could be generated from that you know like you just fall out of your chair laughing when you watch the producers but not every comedy has to be the producers but now that particular form of comedy is not something that's viable because long form television can't do it and cinema won't bother and so that particular type of comedy we're not going to get so much which and that's why it annoys me but uh but when you look at Maisel and you see the beauty in having actors and cameramen and lighting and everything the camera movements are great they're not just static camera, master shot, close up, master shot. Close. The camera moves into close up, then pulls back in one take, and the actors know, and they're playing and rehearsing, and you know, and the t- and when it comes to comedy, what's the most important thing about comedy? Timing. Timing. Yeah, that's it, right? <laughs> that's the joke, right? What's the most important? Big pause. Timing, timing, <laughs> right? That's the that's the ridiculous joke. So. When you want to be really, when you want to get comedy, great, and they get it great in Maisel. The timing on every line of dialogue, the movement of the camera, the movement of the actors is just so on pace. And considering it's a show about a stand-up comedy, about a stand-up comic, right? Better be funny. They better know what timing is, right? <laughs> they know better. Know, they do. So, and it's not surprising. Uh, ASP, right? She has 
a background in dance. She understands music. She understands timing and choreography. And so it's just this beautiful rehearsal um, performance. Every scene is just this wonderful performance. And when you watch it, it's set in the 50s. It's set in 58. It feels almost like that. It feels you... nostalgic in a way, right? Yeah. And what you realize is it's not so much the fact that it's set there. It's not the subject matter. The subject matter feels really contemporary. It's this level of um, of 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 just uh, skill in comedy is feels like it hasn't been around for twenty years. That's why it feels somewhat old because you're watching it and you're going like, I can't remember the last time I saw someone just do comedy like that, mm. and it's just a joy to finally to get it back. Joy is exactly how I would describe yeah. watching Maisel. Yeah. I watched, you know, I watched like, I, I binged a few episodes and I went, like, you know, I think my mum is going to love this. So I watched them again with my mum. Like, you went and watched 15 minutes again with Hannah, yeah. right? But with my mum, I watched like, I think four episodes the day after I'd seen them again. <laughs> you know, just like because I, I, I'm okay with watching this. I've seen, I must have seen the pilot three times or something. It's just, um, I loved it. Let's um let's spin this around then. Um, uh, what do we what do we learn? Um, okay, well, what we learn is so obviously, if you're working in novels, this seems, you know, you don't rehearse. <laughs> okay, but for other things, obviously, a lot of this you can take away, which is the value of rehearsal and the value of actually being meticulous. Because if you, but regardless of the medium. What does happen is, and you mentioned this quote, uh, McKee says, which is that the first actor of your characters is the is the author, hmm. right? He or she is the first, um, first actor, first character for that. And so, um, what happens is you need to actually, even if you're writing a novel, you need to be able to actually read it aloud, even the prose, right? Because, but especially dialogue and things. Because if you're expecting someone else to read it aloud, say an actor, but even if an, if it's just a reader for your novel, but if you're expecting actors to read this stuff out and you haven't actually read out the lines and tried to get your mouth around it, um, guess what's going to happen? The actor will go, yeah, there's a problem here. Can we change the line? Can we restructure it? Can we cut this? Can we cut that? Can we cut that? You know what? I can do this just in the subtext. I don't need this line and all that. And then you get annoyed because everything's being changed. So, but you didn't do your homework. You didn't try and say the words. You didn't try and pay attention to whether or not there's too many syllables. You know, you say it's like, something's not right. I picked the wrong word here, because and you realize oh, it's too many syllables. I need a shorter word. Or you've accidentally put alliteration in there, or you've accidentally put a rhyme in there. How many times does that happen when you write a line and you've just realized you've done a rhyming couplet by accident? And so as a result, out of nowhere, this line pops up which has a rhythm to it that nothing else does, and it just suddenly is like no no we have to change that i have to change that so that's not rhyming anymore um and uh, you've got this sort of uh you know a, a, a one word might end with one letter and begin with the same letter and so they run on or you have you know the the joke you know you've got to pay the troll toll to get into this boy's hole right boy's hole boy, boy's soul you know that kind of thing you have homonyms the accidental homonyms and things that sound different that they're not supposed to sound that way and uh, on and on it goes. And, and then also you have the other issue, which is you just have these run-on sentences where the important thing was said in the first few words and you've carried on for a, for a while. Uh, J. Michael Krasinski, uh, apparently he would write these long speeches and uh, one of the times he wrote such a terrible one, he gave the actor a T-shirt, I think, that said, uh, I had to say this stupid speech by Joe and all I got was this lousy T-shirt, something like that. I think it was Krasinski who made that. Uh, I think it was him. Um, I because I, 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 I it was the whoever it was the author was telling the story. Yeah. So it's not like it's a if I was, if I recall it was him. Um, and uh, and and then you've got the famous <laughs> I told you this story off mic. Alan Moore. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, inhabiting your characters. Alan Moore, the great comic book writer, he was writing this character called Etrigan, who's a demon, and he speaks in rhyming couplets. And Alan Moore was like trying to get into how to do it, so he drew the curtains in his house and started stomping around his house like as a demon and go, you know, a demon from hell. He's really like dense and short and oh, he's going to be angry a lot and hot. Oh, he's going to be hot and sweaty and bothered. 
hey, like that. And he's doing that. He's saying, you yeah, know, that's why I draw the curtain so no one thinks I'm crazy, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, so you, you know, these... Uh, and Alan Moore, by the way, he apparently, if I remember right, he will sometimes, as he's laying out um, the thumbnails for a comic book page, he, you know, he'll just sketch out stickmen and all that stuff and put speech bubbles. And in the speech bubble, he puts a number and that's how many syllables that bit of dialogue is supposed to have. Right? Like he counts the syllables specifically, but then he's got a musical mind too. So he wants to have the right rhythm. But that's the thing. It's like, if, if you want to have, you know, you want to give them a rhythm. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to give the pitter-patter, you know, screwball comedy type feel that that musical quality to it necessarily. But what I mean is, is if you haven't rehearsed how the dialogue sounds coming out, uh, then that means when people read it, you get that moment in novels. You, you get it. Every novel reader has had this experience. You reread it again and again because you realize you read it in an intonation that it's not meant to be in. And what seemed to be a run-on sentence is not. And you go, oh, oh, he, oh okay, right, I get what he's referring to. You, you get that, right? And so that's because you need to read it out loud. You just read it out loud. Actually rehearse it yourself. And then that's at least one step forward, you know, before you get to the set, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I, I got away from me there. <laughs> it was going so well. Yeah, I lost it. Okay. Okay. We're going to end on this downer, aren't we? Good night, Springdon. (laughs) All right, thanks. Go watch Maisel. Yes. If you didn't.